It's June 22nd, 2022, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines, and we'll start with Marine Corps Force Design 2030 update. This is from Mark Kansian and Breaking Defense, and of course, he's at CSIS. But he gives a nice little overview of uh, kind of like the latest on some of the changes going on for Marine Corps. Uh, one of which is they're going to continue with the cut from 24 to 21 infantry battalions, but they're actually going to increase the size of the personnel back over to 800 to 835, where it was down closer to 700. So more personnel costs within the same battalions. Um, tanks are still gone. No plan to replace. Uh, they will increase uh, two cannon batteries, so artillery in that case. Um, so they'll have seven cannon batteries and seven MLRSs, the uh, multiple launch rocket systems, and in addition to other missile batteries. And then we'll go through the force structure cuts. They're going to divest from chemical biological incident response force. That'll be gone. Uh, they will continue to go for headquarter cuts of about 15%. So that's still on track in their mind. And then Marine Corps will also re-examine 13,000 external billets, those things like at White House liaisons and embassies so i guess maybe that's where you get your battalions back over to 800 you bring them in from other places or reassessing that so that might be an interesting trade-off and then v22 fleet still be cut but they're changing the squadrons from 14 squadrons of 12 to 16 squadrons of 10 aircraft um one interesting thing is you know in china apparently they got it's just like two or three um aircraft per squadron which is kind of funny but i guess you can just structure them however you want oh i was gonna say that's probably just because they haven't really built up their fleets yet but yeah Yeah. air force is maybe i guess the the junior partner there in in china Uh, marine corps still plans to increase uavs dramatically quote unquote but only 18 mq9s are programmed i don't Again, I don't know why they're not just going to take all of the Air Forces. Like, what is the Air Force doing with those MQ-9s? Are they actually looking to retire them or just stop buying them? Yeah, they were they were looking at retirement, but I think uh, I think if I saw in the hack D, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so, I mean, one of the things they are they are looking at repurposing them in some ways. Um, they haven't really come down to, to a firm sort of requirement on what, but they, there's there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff going on on that. So, yeah, there there might be something that comes out of it. But, yeah, the Air Force has been trying to get rid of those. And uh, 31 amphibious ships. So that's kind of some of the, the parts that have come out from that. And I guess this will be a continuing saga on Marine Corps Force Design 2030. And I guess, well, we'll be tracking. Will that mantra still hold after General Berger? I don't know when he's leaving, but I feel like he's been there for at least three years. So, um We'll see if that mantra holds after the next commandant comes in. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if the the new commandant will really be able to change things too much, though. Some of some of these things, like uh, some of the critics, <laughs> kind of said you can't you can't go back on some of this. So, you know, I think it does sell something though on the on the cannon batteries. I think one of the critiques was that maybe the Marine Corps was sacrificing too much artillery, and so I, I think you can kind of view that as a compromise to say, yeah, okay, fair fair point. This is an experimental. Uh, meth you know so we'll add some we'll add some additional artillery batteries back in so you know i think you have to take some some more from that i'm kind of interested to see how that plays out with the external external billets you yeah. know like I, I don't know how you can uh, pull back on the embassies that's sort of the marine corps core marine corps mission but yeah it'd be interesting to see what happens there um 
On the V-22 fleet's kind of interesting. And you do the math on the reorganization, it's basically a negative of about eight aircraft. So, you know, not completely insubstantial, but not a huge, not a huge cut either. Um, so, But V-22s yeah. are crazy expensive, I'm assuming, in, in operations and maintenance costs. So you probably get some bucks by, by cutting back there. Yeah, for Marine Corps dollars, you know, I don't think in comparison to some other aircraft, but yeah, compared to Marine Corps, for Marine Corps dollars, it's probably a probably a big chunk that they wanted to reinvest. So, so yeah, maybe that aid is is, is more impactful. But they're still going forward with the CH fifty three K. So, um, yeah, that one's expensive. <laughs> yeah, that's that one's expensive. <laughs> All right, the next one we'll do is cascading issues keeping Air Force Navy planes grounded. Watchdog says, and so. Um, the, the GAO is looking at Air Force airframes mostly, but they, I guess one of the issues here is that the Air Force um, actually tracks aircraft availability. So those the total inventory, including depot, whereas they can only kind of get mission-capable stuff out of uh, the Navy or mission-capable, really, those possessed at the unit level. So most of the stuff that they kind of present in the tables are kind of mission-capable, but they're also looking at the Air Force. And so... For the Air Force, not only are mission-capable rates down, but the uh, the aircraft are unable to fly for longer periods of time, I suppose, back in depot. And so uh, it's really unknown how that's happening or whether that's happening in the Navy, they say, but it is for the Air Force. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> part, part of it might be the Air Force is a little sneakier because um, there's a lot of games that are played with like sort of... Uh, there's, I can't remember all the category names, but there's, you know, there are different designations for an aircraft that is sort of like temporarily grounded uh, versus like permanently mothballed. And there's really fine lines between them. And sometimes the Air Force will kind of play, you know, play along those gray area a little bit. So they won't ground an aircraft permanently. They'll keep it just, uh, you know, just good enough shape to, to say it's not, uh, not doesn't get, doesn't reach a certain des- designator. Uh, and I think there was a good quote from the GA report about this where they said, yeah, KC-135 unit personnel we spoke with said, they actively rotate, a part, ro- rotate parts among their aircraft in an effort to prevent any of them from being designated as a long-term grounded aircraft. So, yeah, there, there's, there's some of that going on. Um, yeah, but definitely the maintainer piece is, is serious. And this is, I mean, the Air Force knew about this a long time ago with the F-35 because that's why they wanted to get those A-10 folks off the A-10 and, and working on F-35 stuff and other platforms because, yeah, the maintainer levels are always low. I think the retention's hard in that field. It's a it's it's a pretty demanding field, especially when we were going to Iraq and Afghanistan a lot. Those folks would deploy like crazy. Uh, so the quality of life was, was pretty bad. I think now it's probably maybe going to get a little bit better. So hopefully they'll be able to retain more people uh, they won't have so many ex- inexperienced folks because that seems to be a big part of it is just a lot of inexperienced people, which just creates more time. So like the Air Force had one other thing in the report is the Air Force has a metric for fixed rate, which basically is like tracks the speed uh, of repair of the aircraft. And they found that, you know, from 2015 to 2020, basically it was it was, you know, trending, trending significantly down. So you know, eight, 12 to 24 hours. It was, it was that time limit was increasing, which just goes to that inexperienced piece, you know? So, um, and, and then on the B1, I thought this was interesting though. Like when you look at the total totality of the maintenance personnel data, you, you do have to dig in deep because some of the maintainer special occupational specialties 
we're staffed at a reasonable level, but there's really some that really skew the data. So some of them were like aircraft fabrication uh, specialty. Uh, there were some some bad numbers for for those. So so yeah, you do kind of have to look at some of some of the some of the things that um, re- maybe require a little bit of extra specialty and not as easy to train and things like that that can really make it look bad. But it definitely sounds like overall there's a huge problem. So. Yeah, definitely on the staffing, they, the GAO found nine out of 15 maintenance units they met with had trouble maintaining their staffing and experienced challenges with uh, turnover and, ex- and, and the like. And then there's also challenges acquiring parts in a timely manner. They went through a list of a bunch of parts for different aircraft, one being, for example, the F-22 um, had to wait 239 days in 2020 for a landing gear component to be built and delivered. So being built and delivered to the unit, you know, I guess that's kind of just in time, uh, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. how much can you inventory on this? I don't know. But then sometimes it seems like when they inventory it, there's, you know, they might inventory the wrong amount or they lose track of it or stuff like that. I don't know if that gets to the audit part of this as well. Well, I mean, there's also sort of, you know, compressed O&M budgets. I mean, I know on the on the Air Force budgeting side, you know, when when you when you actually add up all the O&M sort of requests, you know, from the units, uh, it's funded at 80% or lower. I mean, it's never funded 100%. It's just it's just sort of a, a budgeting tactic uh, that you just fund O&M lower because you know, you know that you can move money around enough that you'll keep something from breaking completely. Um, but you don't want to, you don't want O&M to suck up too much money from investment accounts. And so, so it's a little bit of a trade-off and, you know, I think we, you know, you play a little, you play that a little too, too tight and then you kind of have some things happen where maybe you would have stocked up on some parts, but you, you went a little leaner on that and then you don't have them. Right. So yeah, there were some, there were some other ones in here too, about C5. C5 really seems to have some issues. One part that holds the air, the braking system together was a 14 month delivery. A window seal sill, uh, window seal was a nine months. So yeah, pretty crazy. Some of those timelines. Yeah, well, I mean, if the F twenty two was designed and then built, you know, eighties, nineties, two thousands, C five was built in the sixties yeah. and seventies. So many planes <laughs> were built in the six. So many planes were designed in the sixties that we still fly. It is, it is something else. Sixties and seventies, like crazy. But like, who are the people that like have to hold these old machine tools, I guess, and molds and what jigs and whatever it is for all those years for like these once in a every few years, you get a quantity order of five or six or something like that, you know, like that yeah. whole, somewhere down the line, that's those, those companies exist. Yeah. I mean, that was part of why trans trans uh, transdyne was was doing what they did, right? And some of the stuff they were buying that, uh, you know, if they if things that uh, they thought they might need at some point, you know, uh, C5s are supposed to be retired or something. And people probably, you know, didn't keep the keep the industrial base going on that or, the, or maybe just the orders weren't there, right? And so they just went away. And then, you know, people like Transcend bought them up and said, okay, we'll have this when you're ready, you know? And that's why some of I guess it's better exist. than... Um... And losing like those companies just being like, screw it, I'm out, and just like disposing of all that. I wonder, you know, whether the government would have recourse of taking machine tools or I don't know, something like that. Maybe with DPA or something. Yeah. Like, I mean, technically, under DPA, if you put it as a critical part, you can make them, you can actually make them produce it. 
uh, but you know, you'll pay for it. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a good point on some of these parts. I wonder, did, did they, they just come up with some sort of backdoor agreement that they'll pay them, pay some company that makes these parts for other, other platforms, you know, and they just sort of pay them a, a really good price. That's attractive enough that these companies are willing to keep making them, but yeah. Space Systems Command using a buy-first attitude with procurement. And so I guess this is kind of jumping off with um, other transactions and going for commercial um, infrastructure and all the new space activities going on. Uh, It looks like um, mid-tier is actually participating a lot as well. So uh, Joy White, Executive Director of Space Systems Command, contracting activity said the mid-tier acquisition has been has really helped us streamline how we do our satellite builds i'm sure you're glad to hear um, some praise for middle tier and it's interesting that it's actually coming from like an hca head of contracting activity Um, and she was kind of talking about how she's pretty integrated with the command and with like knowing what the projects are so there's not a lot of i guess approval time or decision time because she's kind of like plugged in and can help make those decisions quicker quicker. And I guess that's also why she's interested in mid-tier. So it's kind of interesting to see that that melding of contracting and acquisition structures, I guess, happening in Space Force. Yeah, I actually got to a lot of these, a lot of the space ones that were using middle tier happened under Dr. Berber's reign. So I actually did get to kind of work on some of those. So yeah, I mean the things like um, evolved evolved um, uh, satcom ESS and then PTS uh, uh, payload. Um, uh, well, I'm kind of forgetting the names of some of these. Anyway, PTS and PTES, uh, all of those kind of started out as MTA, and they were they were always envisioned to sort of do their initial design under MTA, and then eventually transition into into MCA for the longer term. Well, I love the fact that middle tier is helping. I do think the way that some of these I do think the way that authority is being used on some of these is not completely aligned with some of the some of our original intent because, um, like for instance, the ESS satellite, which is a replacement for uh, uh, for the advanced EHF, that one's not fielding until the 2030s, right? So it is good that they, they use middle tier, but that thing was approved back in like 2018, and they're not delivering until the 2030s. That's not the timeline that I really want to see mid tier used for. I really want to see it used for like let, let's get a good, you know, a good MVP satellite and you know that that has really useful capability and then let's get that up and then you know yeah let's launch more and keep adding to them. But it's not the way that those programs are running. So I'm a little bit of more of a critic on some of those because they basically are like we're solving we're putting out a kitchen sink, you know, into all these satellites and it solves every problem and. That's why it's taken 12 years to get one to kind of take, get one up. And so would have liked to see that structured a little differently. But. Well, do you think it's just going to besmirch the middle tier name when you think, are you saying they're actually kind of going to run it as a major capability or just a regular program? Or are you saying that because of that, it's going to be a multi-year timeline? It's just not the point of middle tier, like shorter, smaller, not the big MDAPs, not the 10-year timelines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm okay using MTA as sort of a TMRR, but, but only if you're doing that where you're, you're really testing the bounds of the requirements and you're coming up with real trade-offs to say, hey, okay, we can't, we can't do this in this time, so we're going to defer this one till the next, you know, some future build because it's just like, you know, the risk is not being burned down fast enough. 
And so I would have just liked to see more trade-offs done if they were using mid-tier in that way. And from everything I've seen, at least, it doesn't sound like they did. They basically just sort of crunched along with the same requirements that they've always had and just used MTA as a way to get started faster, which is good. But like you said, it's not the most compelling case to make is this thing still took 12, 13 years to get out there, but it used mid-tier. You know, that, that wasn't how Bill Greenwald and, you know, and folks that started it really really wanted to see um, see it used. It was more about accelerating fielding. So, um, so yeah, I'm sure goodness got, you know, there's goodness here, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. So maybe it works better for smaller sets where you can have like a minimal viable mm-hmm. <laughs> satellite or something production run, and then kind of like start iterating through the requirements and all that. Yeah. Yeah. That would be the idea is that you could, you could actually get something fielded in five years. That was the whole idea with the five years. But, um, I guess that other... would be the point of the, the commercial part, like linking yeah. up the mid-tier with the commercial, which I think was the point of that article, but it kind of jumped around a little bit. It did jump around. I was going to say is that it kind of started off as like where we want to get commercials. There was another article that came out, I think, today that was sort of like critiquing. <laughs> like they say, you know, you guys say you want to buy first, but if you look at the 23 budget, there's like not that much really dedicated to commercial stuff and uh, just wait really. for 27 you know what's after the fit up maybe 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 it'll be by that time yeah i think it is going to take time i think i think there's still the operating operator side the swack and those guys are still really struggling i mean i think you saw it in even in this article where um general gutline sort of saying like we're still trying to figure out like you know if a conflict happens we want to make sure that capability is there and and stuff like that and if it's not there it means we need to buy it and you know, make sure it's ours, you know, so I think there's still this fear a little bit that the commercial sector, if there's a real sort of conflict that they're going to like disappear. I just don't get that. I mean, like when you talk to those companies <laughs> that are, that are in this space, like they, they're, they're a part of the space force as far as they're concerned, you know? So yeah, they probably live for that too. They'd be like, this is an opportunity to yeah. like, you know, contribute, but then also like, since it's in demand and required, like, this is a money-making thing, so I have to perform, right? Like, this is this is the make or break it. Yeah, and in fact, you maybe put incentives on the contract. Like, hey, if there's a conflict, um, you know, we're going to we're gonna increase the, you know, the, the um, you know, the license for the whatever the lease agreement. We're going to increase it by X percent because we realize the additional risk of you being in conflict and the fact that you might become a target. Like, you know, like, incentivize them to to stay involved, you know, so make it worth their while. But anyway, that, I think that is still a struggle. Like, I think they recognize that they want to integrate this in sort of a hybrid architecture, but I still think there's a lot of consternation about it. Um, one other thing I might po- I'll poke at in the article. <laughs> I don't want to poke too much. because I, you know, I love the space force, but um, like, let's not take too much credit for hosting payloads. Like, yeah, yeah. We're, we, we, yeah, we are posting one on, on the Japanese side. We're hosting this thing called Q, QZSS on one of their their, their uh, PNT satellites. Yeah, it's great. It provides some SDA, very minor in the scheme of things. But but yeah, we're doing that. Norway, there's some SATCOM, uh, Arctic SATCOM thing we're tying into. Let's not take too much credit for hosting a payload on some allied satellite. That That is not international collaboration. That is just like a, you know, an opportunity that they, they would have taken any payload because it would have reduced the, the cost of them launching. So, you know, they would have taken it from a commercial company. The fact they took it in the Space Force doesn't make it seem like there's some like huge, you know, international R&D sort of thing going on here. So anyway, I just thought that was worth pointing out. Yeah, well, relative to the regular requirements approach where you just, you know, build it and throw it up yourself, like... 
They're saying, hey, we didn't not take advantage of what was an obvious business and value opportunity. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, hosted payloads is definitely the way to go. There's so much stuff being launched that if we're not taking advantage of that, it's it's crazy, especially for things that sometimes, you know, for these really exotic things, you need your own site, like cause you need to have control of the power and all the other things, but um, and manage that in a certain way. But yeah, for, for things that you're just like, I wonder a, what the premium the there is for put hosting a, like a military payload on something because it's now like, okay, well, now you're a target. And so your costs or your risk base is higher. Do you think they charge a premium? I don't, you know, I don't know. It's a good point. Um, I think it depends on the sensor. Uh, if it's something passive, you know, that probably wouldn't warrant being targeted probably not a big deal, but if it's, uh, you know, something more sophisticated, uh, you know, yeah, that might be. <laughs> don't share a ride with a GPS. How about that? <laughs> uh, don't, don't share a ride with some, you know, some, you know, uh, ISR sensor or something, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of those, some of those you might, you know, if you're a commercial company, I, I, I imagine they think about that with insurance and everything else. I have to imagine they factor that in. U.S. also has a national strategy to put factories in space. Not a ton of information here, but it can be useful for um, autonomous infrastructure for doing ultra-efficient fiber optics or novel drugs. And I guess you can also 3D print hearts and stuff like that. I guess the microgravity, even small amounts of gravity, like um, can really screw things up and you have like an accumulation of fiber optics at the bottom. So it's not like a perfect distribution and you can't pump data through as fast. So it's kind of interesting, but uh, what did you take away? Yeah, I mean, it may, yeah, it makes sense. Um, I mean, yeah, it's just, uh, I guess it's just when, a lot. When of we're old men, maybe yeah. we'll see it, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, I think in five to 10 years, we'll start seeing some like low cost manufacturing or like some types of manufacturing for exquisite things. I mean, it seems like we should be there almost like, right? With all the 3D and everything else, and it's a sort of, I, I I don't know. I don't sort of know like what that tipping point is, and I don't know this industry well enough. But I I feel like there has to be that tipping point where like you know the the Chinese manufacturing and shifting it to all these lower lower cost companies or countries. You know, at some point, what, at what point does it make it where like okay, now the tipping point is such that it's worth making these other investments because we have to you know, it's the technology is there, it's cheap enough and scalable enough and things like that. So I think a lot of it is just like launch and recovery, you know, like it takes a lot of money to get like weight up there, like materials up there. So you need like, a yeah. Whole yeah. you need launch yeah. costs to come down. You need a good re-entry vehicle that's reliable. Um, and you need, I don't know, like potentially infrastructure in space or some kind of like, I guess that's where asteroid mining and all that comes from. So it's like, you don't have to bring the materials up. You can get them from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I think you're right. Um, and, and maybe even though SpaceX is, you know, made it a lot cheaper and you have things like slingshot and some of these different groups that are trying, trying things to make it cheaper. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe it's still, yeah, maybe it's still too expensive, but definitely sounds like China's all in on it. So it is kind of one of those things where like... Well, they have know, a paper plan, but I don't know how much money they put towards it. I don't know. They Remember they had like that them. mile long <laughs> space <laughs> factory plan? It was just like... They seem committed to getting on the moon though. And they're going to have to yeah. bring some... 
bring some stuff up there uh, if they're going to operate there. And they, you know, I guess we'll see. You know, maybe they do run out of money. Maybe it's one of those things where like they're focused on so many other kind of conventional capabilities that they underfund they underfund that and then they never get around to it. <laughs> you know, but one of the things though is like in general, like beyond the factories, since there was some other stuff in this article about in certain space servicing, um, in space servicing makes a ton of sense. I, I am interested in this thing that uh, they talked about, this mission extension pod. I guess DARPA was involved with it, where it actually sort of attaches to another spacecraft to, uh, you know, basically kind of add a propulsion system on the side of the on the side of it, rather than sort of integrating or doing something because the satellite, the satellite's not designed for having its propulsion system messed with. It, it yeah. might not work as well, but this is this could actually be something where like. You attach it on the side, and it just sort of somehow continues to provide fuel. And I'm not sure some of the details of that, but but that that's pretty fascinating to me. Like if you could actually get that to work, uh, and all the legacy satellites we have up there that are running out of fuel, you could just sort of attach this thing to the side of it and keep it going for another you know x number of years. I mean, that would be huge. Was yeah, it, that I mean, it seems like maybe it gives you some ability to to maneuver, but like, how is it gonna? power the rest of it up yeah i mean that's a lot of the, the fuel so usually most of the satellites have like they'll have a um, fuel and ox and kind of an ox uh, sort of sort of thing oxygen tank so there's like two sides and then together they fuel you know the big kind of the big bursts but then you can just use the fuel for sort of the small little little adjusting bursts um, just to keep it in orbit or keep it from you know moving uh, you know station keeping kind of stuff um so, yeah, maybe it's just like a station keeping kind of thing, and it doesn't doesn't do the big big bursts, and it doesn't do any of the internal power. But in general, the internal power is mostly on the solar panels. So, as long as your solar panels are still working, you probably could power most of your electronics. Um, so you wouldn't you wouldn't use the fuel for that. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I kind of want to want to learn more about that. That's kind of a fascinating one. Next one we got is the Bradley replacement could be U.S. Army's first hybrid combat vehicle. And so this is, of course, the optionally manned fighting vehicle, OMFV. And there's five competitors, Point Blank, Enterprise, Oshkosh, BAE, General Dynamics, and American subsidiary of Rheinmetall. And uh, I guess they all proposed initial designs that are hybrid vehicles. Um, So it'll be smaller, have a smaller logistical footprint. so yeah, that's kind of interesting. I guess they've all kind of converged on the same thing. No one's taken a risk otherwise. <laughs> but um, but yeah. no ele- full electric, which probably makes a lot of sense. Actually, I love the the quote here from General Dean. It's about size and weight. If you took the amount of batteries with current technologies that you need to move an Abrams tank pur- purely electrically, it's bigger than the tank. So we would have a packaging and storing problem when it comes to pure electric. And so... And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because like the Teslas are just way heavier than just like a regular, you know, Toyota Camry or something like that. Um, so they actually do pretty well in the snow and stuff. But yeah, you can imagine scaling up the frame of the body. You're going to need like probably, you know, um, some kind of exponential increase in in the power, the weight of the battery as like the, the weight and the size of the vehicle gets bigger. Yeah, I, I will say I'm curious about how they will do all the trade-offs on this because I have a hybrid SUV and people kind of ask me about it. Like, Oh, you have a hybrid. That's kind of, that's perfect. And I, 
my my general reaction is that it's sort of the worst trade worst of both trade-offs in a way because it gives me marginal like fuel efficiency i, I say marginal because like there's some some gasoline engines are just you know pretty efficient like almost you know, almost similar to a hybrid but it's sort of like it has like this extra you know extra thing you still have the combustion engine but then you have this like extra battery you have to worry about and pay like thousands of dollars for if something goes out on it so I, I do kind of wonder on this one if this like hybrid is, you know, what are the trade-offs for it? Is there a speed trade-off? Is there, you know, is there like a, a system limitation because it can only power so many things on it because, you know, so much of the, they have to make the engine smaller or something, you know, because they, they're adding this other hybrid piece and the battery and all this other stuff. So, uh, you know, I would have liked to seen them just go like pure electric or, you know, and, you know, kind of like design the vehicle so that they could go pure electric when the, you know, technology starts to get there. And at some point there's going to be a breakthrough with batteries or what we call But support. think about the, I mean, you, you got to design it now. So you're going to have to just make crazy requirements, compromises uh, on the OMFE, right? Well, that's what I'm saying. Is it, yeah. And, and there probably wasn't a way to really Which is fine, it. you know, <laughs> like, I guess that's like, yeah. that's a big choice for the program to, to be making. Or or maybe it's just like you needed a follower program and can you like split the cost here somehow? Yeah, maybe I'm wrong. And maybe there's like huge fuel efficiencies. I know like tanks, like the, the M1 Abrams tank basically has a jet engine in the back of it. Yeah. And it, it just consumes fuel. Like it's a gas, huge gas guzzler. Um, I don't know what the like legacy Bradley, how bad... How bad the like the legacy Bradley was, but but yeah, I mean, if it's if they get like a twenty percent fuel efficiency out of it, and they are able to sort of still keep most of the other capabilities that they would want, you know, then maybe it is worth it. I, I will be curious to see some of those trade offs that they have on there. Um, yeah, yeah, it would have been interesting if at least like one or two of them decided to just you know go classic, right, um, all gas. So I don't. I don't know. You, you, we're not going to explore that and you don't kind of see the diversity. It's weird that they all just kind of piled in on it. Uh, maybe they kind of saw the writing on the wall from the administration Yeah. in terms yeah. of, you know, what they kind of wanted to see. Yeah. Uh, BAE systems producing AMPV at full rate production eyes going faster. And that's of course uh, the family of armored vehicles or armored multi-purpose vehicles, the M. 113s and BAE system is now currently producing at 12 vehicles a month and they have five variants armored ambulance mobile surgery mobile command post so they got like networking um things there mortar carrier for close-in fire support and general purpose troop transport and so it looks like BAE here is just saying hey we're building them um they're about to go through live fire tests and uh get into IOC uh, we can produce more if you guys want, <laughs> but uh, AMPV is one of the 24 by 2023 uh, programs for the army. And so looks like it's on track to deliver on time. Yeah. This program just makes a lot of sense. I mean, that, that vehicle is, I mean, I, when I first saw that, I kind of thought it almost looks like something out of star Wars, you know, like, you know, like on Tatooine or something like some vehicle, it's just got like, all kinds of crap all over it. It's like, but it just looks super, super like utilitarian. Um, so yeah, it, uh, you need this stuff, right? When you're, when you're fighting, like just imagine something, you know, um, if we had a conflict uh, in Europe, like these kinds of things are going to be super useful to, uh, to be able to, to maneuver forces and get around where you need to get. 
uh, some of the other kind of, uh, I guess, big ticket items on the 24 by 23, by the way, are precision strike missile, extended can- extended range cannon artillery, long range hypersonic weapon, mid range capability. Um, th- this one, AMPV, the armored multi-purpose vehicle, robotic combat vehicle, and mobile protective firepower. Um, so next one we got, new Israeli combat vehicle is part Dakar buggy, part McLaren F1. And so this Israeli defense company kind of has something that they wanted to be more like a classic Jeep, not as big and ponderous as a JLTV or a Humvee. And so it it's pretty cool looking, actually. You know, it looks like kind of like a, a all-terrain buggy, but that's also kind of souped up and can go pretty fast. So kind yeah, of a cool pretty... idea. It's, and it's got, you know, um, machine gun on the top. Yeah, it, it does look really cool. I I am a little bit curious about, like, its sort of con ops. Um, because, I mean, it makes sense. Israelis use it, you know, kind of the Gaza Strip kind of stuff, like, uh, you know, security patrols. Um I'm kind of curious, like just apart from sort of like general security patrols or something, how it would would it integrate in the force? Would they use it out there? Because it really only has like one guy, one guy inside of it. Like they did build it like a race car, um, you know, an NF1 car. There's like one driver sort of centered in the middle, and so literally there's one driver centered in the middle of that whole cockpit, and there's the guy up top. So yeah, it's, it doesn't have it doesn't have a lot to it. So it's interesting, but. What a great, what a great look. I definitely want one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're pretty cool. But um, yeah, no, I mean, they definitely got the the mobility, right? They, they yeah. looks like that can go fast and in a lot of terrains. And, you know, I wonder if you can just like swarm them in a way at a relatively low cost. Um, and they're also, by the way, uh, they, they have the ability to be fully remote controlled. So definitely they'd oh. be kind of like a recon slash, you know, skirmish kind of kind of vehicle. Oh, I didn't realize they had that on there. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Um, Israel, by the way, also unveils armed robotic vehicle for forward reconnaissance. And this one, the medium robotic combat vehicle, I guess they call it basically the same thing that we do here in the U.S. Because the Army has their own medium robotic combat vehicle. That confused me, Um, too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it was uh, unveiled for the first time, and it integrates several cutting-edge technologies, according to the ministry. Um, It's also got a 30-millimeter a machine gun turret on it. Uh, but one of the interesting things here for me, at least was kind of how it was put together here. So it's like um, the tank and APC directorate there from the, from the ministry was doing kind of like the, the gun. And then you had Elbit systems, which did the active defense system. So the trophy probably missile launcher by Israel aerospace industries. Raphael did uh, the spike anti-take missiles. And so it was kind of like a hybrid of, you know, government integration and support as well as like a bunch of uh, companies as well. So, yeah, I, I guess it's already kind of deploying and patrolling the Gaza Strip. So looks like they're getting some use out of it already. Yeah, I think I think one to, to your lesson kind of to your, that you're taking away there. I think the one thing we can take away from how the Israelis, you know, generally do acquisition and anyone that's ever dealt with dealt with them on an acquisition will tell you that they'll take your platform and they will make it better. <laughs> they basically are like, okay, thanks for building this MVP. We're going to actually sort of add a bunch of things on this and make it exactly what we want. Um, and uh, they did that initially with the F-35 and they backed out after the price tag got too high. But, but yeah, so, I mean, this makes a lot of sense. I think they are kind of, you know, 
they do kind of subscribe to that own the technical baseline. They have the, they have people that are, you know, kind of experts, you know, at this and they have a deep engineering sort of expertise. So, so yeah, I, this, this makes a lot of sense that they could kind of pull this off and, and pull all the best pieces, which is right. That's the vision that we always talk about, you know, is, is the ability to do that. And, um, and so, yeah, just, uh, yeah, looks like a good looks like a good vehicle. I do wonder, uh, you know, if this really works out, and it's, you know, it's, it's it has the autonomy that the army wants, the U.S. Army. Uh, why not? Uh, why not buy this? <laughs> could be uh, could be a good, you know, fit the M, M put, fit the MRCD. Uh, bring this thing over to the uh, U.S. Army oh, no. side. The army has some pride. They're not going <laughs> to let that happen. I know. Um, no U.S. companies in the mix here. That, is, that was probably where Israel It's going to be hard for us to even be able to adjudicate because, like, again, it's like, oh, it looks cool. Well, that, like, none of that really matters because it's, like, all in the autonomy and how it performs and, like, how how open is a lot of that performance going to be? I mean, people might start talking about it, but um, you, could, you could imagine, like, regardless of the difference in performance, even if, like, the Israelis really got it down and somehow the army struggles... Like, are we still going to go forward with that program? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I think you're right. I do think like the environment that the Israelis operate in is, is generally a little bit more favorable to, um, you know, for how they're using it, right? The patrolling and stuff. Whereas the army is definitely envisioning more complex environments um, that it would have to operate in. And, and clearly, there's a lot more progress to be made on some of the autonomy algorithms and stuff to to make that to make that work over rough terrain and you know, things like that. So yeah, you're probably right. This probably would not meet the army's requirements, but even if it did, they would probably go for it. <laughs> Autonomy on a striker. It'll be challenging. General says, uh, so it looks like they're in the Hask, the house armed services committee in the 23 NDAA had a provision for the army to assess the feasibility and estimated costs of putting autonomy on strikers. Um, optionally manned or advanced or otherwise. So General Dean here, back to uh, Program Executive Office uh, for Ground Combat Systems. He explains that the vehicle's current steering and throttle are mechanically linked as opposed to having electrical systems saying the signals to maneuver the vehicle, otherwise known as drive-by-wire. So uh, in order to have autonomy, basically they just have to rip that all out and do that over again. (laughs) Which is not inconsequential. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that's the point. So yeah, that, that's... maybe leave strikers how they are. <laughs> I, you know, I'm kind of amazed at this. Like, um, uh, I even wonder if the OMFV is going to have drive by wire. I, I read something about this where, like, apparently there's a little bit of a reluctance to to go to drive by wire. It's sort of like, I don't know if it's just the old school kind of approach that, like, hey, this is proven. If we need to, you know, if we need to move the vehicle, we know it's going to go where we want it to because it's mechanical linkage is more understandable than having some kind of electrical issue or something. Um, But yeah, kind of crazy. The striker doesn't have some sort of, you know, uh, imagine if aircraft were still mechanically. I know. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, A huge time lag. DOD struggles to rush cutting edge tech to Ukraine. There wasn't too much, uh, good information in this besides just like some opinions that things aren't going so well. But one interesting point that I pulled out was that the, uh, the, the Pentagon and kind of at the early parts of the Ukraine conflict wanted to assess comp- how, like how quickly companies could send products to Ukraine 
30 days or less, 90 days, 180 days. Um, and companies were asked to describe that pretty quickly. They got over 1,300 responses from drone and air defense and communication systems and others. And yet, you know, after that request, DOD is just like, yeah, well, thanks for that. We're not doing anything with it, apparently. Um, and they're going to wait for further developments as strategy uh, flows in with the appropriations. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I did hear some some good things, though, that some things were getting out there pretty fast. And, you know, maybe that's um, I don't have exact words on that. But, you know, folks from the military and from industry were saying that. So I don't know if it's all doom and gloom. I, I bet you, you know, the the system starts working in targeted ways when enough pressure gets put onto it. And this must have been one of them. But, you know, the broader system itself, you know, might not be reacting. Well, I mean, I think they did. Actually, uh, Commander Salamander, um, his, in his awesome blogs, uh, he actually did have one where he showed sort of what we promised Ukraine. I think the Ukraine uh, Defense Ministry is sort of putting this out too, where we showed what we promised and then what had been delivered. And if I recall the graph, I mean, I think it was like 30% fulfilled or something. I can't remember the exact date on it. But I think we have sort of pulled into our stockpiles, you know, and, and gotten a lot of that stuff out to Ukraine. And yeah, I mean, this 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 goes to what we've talked about, Eric, with the industrial base and sort of mobilization. It's not easy, especially on some of this more complex equipment. It's not easy to just overnight just hit, hit you know, hit a switch and uh, companies can, all, all, you know, increase production by 100 percent. Like it, it's, it's, it's just not that um we're not that adaptive. And so I think this is probably a good example of that. But getting stocks out, right? Like that's yeah. a different thing than, cause I think there were folks were saying like within like a week we would get, you know, something from A to B. Um, and that makes sense if it's just like, it's sitting in my inventory there and I just need to put it on a C-17 and fly it over there, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely build like restocking things or getting new, new items out. Um, I just saw, an article where France apparently put like an urgent requirement in for switchblades. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, Interesting. Environment must be, you know, having a field day. I wonder, um, wonder, you know, it sucks, but you know, I guess the, the war is in some ways, uh, an advertisement for them. Oh yeah. Yeah. France, yeah. France likes to sell weapons, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a demand signal, you know, it's like, it's not often where you get to learn something, you know, about value in military affairs that is pretty conclusive. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. no, you're yeah. right about that. This is, there's a lot we can learn with, you know, not as much consequence for, for the U S even though, you know, if Ukraine does, does have issues, it's going to create some real impact, but, but yeah, you're right. This is it's kind of a warning signal, right? A little bit. HII develops unmanned launch and recovery system for amphib ships. And so uh, Engels Shipyard has, which makes unmanned vessels as well. Um, you know, they're, they have this cool looking ship pretty much that they prototype through IRAD, it looks like, um, the internal research and development projects. And it's basically, you know, a large, you know, ship, I guess, an, and it will be able to launch and recover unmanned ships. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's funny that this is happening on IRAD when it feels like it should be kind of part of the experimentation and base budget, but I'm sure that's HII's view too. Like, hey, 
this needs to be part of a, you know, concept of operations and requirement. You know, I'm sure a lot of people will probably look at the LSDs and think of those as like, yeah, those could be, they're, they're hauling Marines around, but they could probably be uh, unmanned, either UAVs or UAS, you know, um, motherships to a degree. So there's already one kind of purpose built here. Uh, so it'd be kind of cool to see them experiment on that. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you kind of, you do have to give them credit for, I mean, the positive thing, I guess, is that they're seeing enough of a demand signal that they were willing to make that investment. Because clearly, I mean, the Navy is investing in UUVs, right? Um, one of the articles was about the Orca running behind. So, you know, it's clear that the Navy, especially the larger ones, they see a lot of value in that. And so, yeah, it's probably HII thinking, well, this is, you know, the time will come where this is needed. And the one thing the Navy doesn't have is a really good way of retrieving, <laughs> of retrieving them and, uh, and you know, launching and recovering them. So, you know, they will be in a really good position when the Navy finally comes to realization, like, hey, maybe we should have, you know, one of these types of vessels. Um, and, and also it, it makes sense for them too. Like maybe they can almost start to sell this, you know, as a package, right? Like, you know, they, they I don't know when the next con- Navy contract will come out for another unmanned underwater vehicle, but, you know, the next one that comes out, they'll be in a, in a good situation to say, hey, you could, you can also use this vehicle, which is configured for this and has all these extra, you know, sort of efficiencies. So yeah, this might be a good long-term play for them. That's all we got time for today. Thanks, Matt. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.